you do realize that I'm leaving the company because we lost Baldur's Gate 3. Like, right. do you do know that? And the HR guy had no idea what Baldur's Gate was. And I'm what? like, wow. <laughs> I'm like, I don't think I can explain to you the gravity of this situation, but right. I feel better about leaving now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it sucked. Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to game designer Chris Avalone, who is best known for his work on a number of role-playing games, including Fallout 2, Planescape Torment, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic 2, Fallout New Vegas, and Wasteland 2. He is currently working on a spiritual successor to Torment, Torment Tides of Numenera, with In Exile Entertainment. So what I actually usually start with is asking people, what's the first video game they remember? Okay. And so the first video game I remember was actually Bard's Tale 1. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Actually, it was Bard's Tale 2. Well, my apologies. Uh, And it actually wasn't on my computer. Sure. I had gone over to a friend's house to prepare for a Dungeons & Dragons session, uh, and I saw it playing on his computer. And I'm like, hey, wait a minute. Um, (laughs) there's actually a way to have the computer be a game master for you and I can finally be a player. And then I got really excited because Bard's Tale at the time with the, the full color graphics, it was like above wizardry in the sense that it, it felt more immersive because it had color. Right. Um, but yeah, but Bard's Tale 2 was the first one I remember. And then, then, I, then I went out and, well, after convincing my dad that a Commodore 64 would be the most educational tool that a <laughs> young student could get, and then followed by Bard's Tale 2, which would treat, you know, teach me math and tactics and things like that. He was a pretty good sport about it. Awesome, cool. So, did you play, did you start with Bar's Tale One, or did you just jump right into? Uh, it? I jumped right into Bar's Tale Two. Found out it was too hard. The dungeons <laughs> were insanely complex yeah. to the point where I just thought they were ridiculous, and I thought Bar's Tale One was far more manageable, even though it lacked a lot of the bells, the bells and whistles of uh, of Bar's Tale One. But uh, I mean Bar's Tale Two. But Bar's Tale One, I really really enjoyed, and I played that all the way through. But I actually never properly finished Bar's Tale Two. I actually cheated to get all the way to the end because there was some like disc switching mechanism where you could jump right to the end battle, which was surprisingly easier than going to the middle dungeons. And that mm-hmm. kind of surprised me. But uh, yeah, that was pretty much it. And I love Bard's Tale 3. In fact, I love the entire Bard's Tale series. Right. Cool. I actually, just last year, I uh, I saw that you could play Bard's Tale on, on the iPad. So I, I bought myself a, like a book of graph paper, and I just started playing through it. Yep. Um, and it, it held up surprisingly well. Like, um, even even some of like the mapping challenges, like, it you know, it's hard to explain the feeling of trying to map something out yourself, mm-hmm. you know, like what that felt like and how kind of um, cool that was to kind of like or try to orient yourself and like what happens when you got lost and like that it gave you tools to find yourself. I forgot that essentially like, you know, the mapping tools were part of the game mechanic, right? Like there was this, mm-hmm. there was like a spell you could cast that would tell you how far east yep. you are and how far north you were. And then you know, there was teleportation spells, which sometimes worked and sometimes didn't. Mm-hmm. And like, like the compass was a spell too. And like, you know, it was and, like... You know, wait, waiting for those teleport traps in the dungeon, like I would almost get paranoid about watching for that flash that on flash. the screen. Yep. And I'm like, I've moved. <laughs> and now I'm not going to touch a single key until I figure out where I am. But like the map making, like I, I would get the entire graph paper too. And 
I would actually like do colored maps and try and make them really, really artistic because I felt like, I don't know, it was just such an investment of time. I was having such a good time with Bard's Tale that uh, I actually, to an extent, almost miss map making, which is kind of crazy, but... Yeah, that's one of those things, like, I sometimes wonder, like, when I was playing this, I was sort of, like, think to myself, is there any way to bring this feeling back to a modern game or not? Um, Did you play the Etrian Odyssey games? Uh, no, actually I didn't. Okay, so um, they were about the closest thing I could think of because if you play it on a DS, right, and the top screen was very much like a Bard's Tale type mm-hmm. game. Um, you know, you're moving tile to tile through a dungeon, and then you have these these little turn-based battles where there's a front row and a back row, and, you know, it's, it's Bard's Tale, basically, um, which is, you know, wizardry, basically, and you know, all the way back to the root, right? But on the bottom of the screen, it was gra- a graph pa- a piece of graph paper, you know, it's a DS, you got the stylus, right? And so you would be drawing the map out. It would not auto-map for you. Oh, very cool. Like, you had to do the map yourself. And, like, you could draw it wrong, and then, like, you know, be like, wait a minute, where, this is not right. And they're like, oh, crap. I'm yeah, you know, I actually think the, the, the last game that I saw where I felt like I was, the, the my ability to map made a difference was a lot of the uh, the Zelda games that were on the DS with a stylus. They actually had you map out uh, certain patterns as you move through the dungeon. That was actually part of some of their puzzle mechanics, and I loved that. I mean, aside from all the other cool stuff you do with the stylus, like when you actually could drag it around, your boomerang would follow whatever path you drew, which was awesome. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I really missed those aspects. And I also felt like I was really exploring a dungeon in Bard's Tale because there were those, like, those little hint squares every once in a while that would actually give you a text going, here's a clue to oh, something. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I found one. Oh, fantastic. I'm so excited right yeah. now. Yeah, and you'd like... Mark a little number on the on the map, and then yep. write the number here, yes, and exactly. you write out the write out the phrase on the right side or whatever. Yeah, I'm really excited to see what uh, NXL does with the new uh, with the new Bard's Tale. They're gonna they're gonna turn out. I think they're they're doing it. They did a great job with Wasteland Two, and then mm-hmm. uh, uh, the new uh, Torment successor. I think is gonna be pretty solid, and then Bard's Tale is the next one up. So I think they've got a whole slate of RPGs coming up. But hopefully, it'll recapture a lot of that original feel. Yeah, that seems like a. I mean, I could see them kind of going one of two ways of like you know. Make, you know, making it modern in the way like they moved sort of with, with Wasteland, right? But like so much of what I remember about Bard's Tale is like just that, that you know, old style game mm-hmm. of, you know, a tiled map and like, uh, I don't know. Like there, was, it, there was a certain magic to Bard's Tale 3 and I, I don't know whether it was because uh, Mike Stackpole was doing some of the writing for it, but for like a grid-based dungeon explorer, that game felt so much more deep and epic than I think I was used to for any of that game of that type of that. Like, the the situations were cool, like, even the really brief conversations you had, um, just uh, the the whole idea that, you know, the Scarabray had burned down, and, you know, the I, 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 there was just so much great stuff going on in that game, and I, I hope they, they're able to recapture some of that, too. Am I remember, right, did that game have, like, time travel? It possibly. What it did was it had, uh, so I guess you returned to Scarabray, it's burned out, uh, is it is it Magnar? I forgot. Right. Okay, yeah. he's he's, <laughs> or maybe it's Tarjan. Wow, who was the bad guy? Uh, Tarjan, that was the name you typed into the Mad God's Temple, right? And but be, but but he they actually had to sell him up because it was he was so easy to beat in Bard's Tale One that I thought that actually he erupted like in Bard's Tale Three and suddenly he was the main bag. That's what I thought. Okay, that and then you, then you have to fight him across dimensions, and then the way you would cross dimensions is you would go explore, like, the environmental map outside of Scarab, right? You'd jump into a new dimension that had a crazy-ass dungeon associated with it that weren't as hard as Bard's Tale 2 dungeons, thank God. Um, and that just felt like a, this really weird dimensional traveling experience, and I, I just loved it. I thought it was great. Wow. Yeah, I always, I always heard Bard's Tale 3 was, was pretty cool, but it looked like it just looked so enormous. 
Like, it yeah. did, uh, but yet somehow it was still manage- more manageable than uh, Barcelona 2. And Barcelona 2 stopped me at this one place called Asan's Fortress, where I think it was like the fourth or fifth level. And there were like spinner traps everywhere, and the yeah. entire level was like 10 by 10 rooms with doors. Yeah. And I'm like, if I find the person that made this dungeon, I will kill them. Like, <laughs> I am so mad right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I felt like I really appreciated when I went back to Bard's Tale 1 that I felt like they were really like making choices about making design choices about how how much how much they should be pushing back on the player. Mm-hmm. Like they were actually thinking about the whole game and I I I I, I mean I didn't go back to play Bard's Tale 2 but I remember from a kid that game just seemed like ridiculous. Yep. Like just ridiculously sprawling and you know they were you know it was kind of like the the sadist school of design that's, that's sometimes easy to get to when you make a game and it's successful and there's you know there's a group of fans who are just the ones you the thing trick is the ones you hear from are the ones who find the game too easy and they want it you know they want you to just ratchet it up and it just seems like that's what that's what they did um, and to this day i still cite uh, bard's tale as one of the it's, it's got a design principle about how to make a class worthwhile and that's through inventory item distribution because bards are cool yeah but bards are awesome when they have a fire horn. Sure. And suddenly when they can cast a fireball whenever they play a song has always been proof positive to me. Like, you know what? That's how you make bards super cool. So, yeah. yeah. So in the sense that the, the, the loot you get makes all the different classes more interesting. Yeah. And I, well, I mean, cause like I know that the, the hunters, for example, would get those blade, like the Morn blade that would give them a higher chance of critical hit of the specter snares. But I, what I loved about the, about the, about the bards was the fact that it felt like there were inventory items, every level that, 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 that said, Hey, you know what here you are now going to have proof positive why a bard is cool. And here's your flame horn. Here's mm-hmm. your fire horn to down, just rock out. Yeah. I remember basically picking the bard out of faith. It was just like, it's called the bard's tale. I'll probably need that. Yeah, yeah, like, and that was with Thief of Fate and <laughs> Thief of Fate and Bard's Tale Three. You're like, well, I guess I need a thief, yep. even though I would arguably say that there's only one encounter where it ever really matters, and that got me really frustrated. But anyway, yeah, wow, cool. So, um, I mean, was it kind of all RPGs for you back in that age? Like, uh, no, actually, um, I just do a range of stuff. Like, I used to. I mean, I would say like I played Dungeon Master, and I really enjoyed that. That was that was on the Amiga. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, I enjoyed, uh, I strangely enough enjoyed a lot of first person shooter games, mostly because the campus center computer had Doom installed on it and Wolfenstein. So I played those for way too many hours when I should have been doing security rounds. Um, but yeah, no, it was a whole range of stuff. And I think, um, I think that's kind of important for game design because I feel that other genres of computer games have already solved problems that I think other people that are solely focused on one genre have can't see until they actually explore that other genre so i think that whole cross-pollinization thing is really important okay so during this phase were you were you still this was before college Um, Uh, actually i was a junior high school all the way uh until yes the end of high school and the only reason i stopped playing computer games is strangely enough i thought it was a waste of time (laughs) and i was like i can't write DD adventures when i'm playing computer games so therefore, computer games have to go away. And then <laughs> I started writing all these pen and paper adventures. That's a new. And, that's a new one for winning video games. And then I got into computer games, and I'm like, all right, well now I get to go back and play computer games again. That was awesome. So wow. Okay. Did you? So at the time, did you think at all about like maybe someday I could make make computer games? Or uh, it never occurred to me. Um, to be honest, the my my sole goal was to either write comic books. Or to write D and D adventures full time and get paid for it. The idea that you could be a computer game master 
had not occurred to me until my editor brought it up. And he's like, hey, you know, Interplay has this TSR division. You should apply for a job there, especially since we can't pay you for just about anything. And I'm like, okay, well, that sounds good. And then I'm like, okay, well, as long as they allow me to write pen and paper stuff in my free time, then because I had no idea what, what computer development hours were then. <laughs> that, was, that was like a total pipe dream. And they're like, yeah, sure, it shouldn't be a problem. So I went to Interplay. Um, uh, I got the junior designer position, and then um, I actually put all the pen and paper stuff writing aside because I'm like, oh, my God, this is, like a full, this is not only a full-time job. It's like 60 hours or 80 hours, but I was having a blast doing it. So then after that, I'm like, oh, my God, I can, do a, I can be a computer game master. So, uh, yeah, I was pretty excited about that. Cool. So that was your first job in the industry at Interplay. Yes. And this would have been what, mid-90s? Yes. Like, I, I forget the exact date, but I, I want to say 94, 95, but uh, yes, thereabouts, yeah. Okay. But you always knew you wanted to do something something creative, something with writing. Yes. And you know what? I thought that actually wasn't possible at all. Like I think the two options I got out of college was either teach or be a lawyer. Right. And I'm like, but... But like throughout college, even had so. you just graduated like at that point? Yeah, I had, I like, I, there was like a year after I graduated with an English major, which is the most valuable <laughs> major in the world, um, and I had no idea what to do. But I, but they were still publishing like the pen and paper stuff during that time. So finally, I had, so finally I just talked to they. Who, oh, sorry, uh, Hero Games. They Hero uh, Games, uh, they were they were, they were publishing uh, a lot of a lot of my stuff during that time. So I'm like, hey, um, how did you? So how did you first? Go, I mean, so when you were a kid, you were writing probably D&D campaigns, right? Right. So, um, and first start to work for a company then um so what happened was um so all my players were really lazy and i really wanted to play but mm-hmm. no, there was no way we could play a D game unless someone game mastered so i volunteered so i could play vicariously sure and so after about 10 years of that i had a whole stack of material that felt like it was just going to go to waste and like i put a lot of work into this like yeah. i wonder if anyone will publish it and the answer is no um i submitted many many modules to dungeon uh, magazine and they all they turned me down pretty consistently i turned in uh, stuff for gurps and champions did they just have like in the back of the magazine like an open submission address or something no i like uh, actually had to contact them request writing guidelines try and get in touch with the editors uh-huh. and I, I had all the horror experiences sure. where, like editors would just stop like would immediately throw up like the assistant editor wall right. and make sure they, they never have to talk to me ever again yeah and then i had uh, i had like monty cook who does like Tides of Numenera? Who does? Who's doing the Numenera stuff now? He actually specifically wrote to me and said, "You need to stop submitting stuff." Because, <laughs> and I'm like, "Wow, that really killed me." <laughs> um, but eventually, uh, and if I had any advice, it's one day a company is going to get really desperate, uh-huh. and that's what happened with me. Like with the Champions guys, the Hero Games. They started a brand new product line called Dark Champions, which is kind of like their Batman version of the Champions universe, which is pretty cool. And I love Batman uh, villains, and I love Arkham Asylum, and the whole cast of characters there because they're not really super powered. They're just crazy psychology. Um, so they're like, "Hey, well, you you kind of submit an annoying amount of material. <laughs> Would you be interested in doing a character book for this for this Dark Champions line?" I'm like. Uh, yeah, I would love to. I was all really excited. Like, yeah, whatever. Um, so I did this book called Underworld Enemies, which is like a character book of like about 40 villains. Submitted that. They really liked it. And then once that submission went through, suddenly I got a lot more work for doing adventure. Because I'd, I'd proven myself by that point. Like, okay, well, here's some adventure books. Um, you know, then Dragon Magazines was like suddenly interested in publishing articles. And then I, I built up a portfolio that way. 
but even so, like fifty bucks every two months is not enough to live on. So I finally, would, you know, talked to my editor, wow. um, who uh, I think he's actually doing. Uh, he's actually in journalism right now for computer games. Uh, he he said, okay, well, I can get you to interview at Interplay if you want, and then if you guys if you want to keep doing written submissions for us, you still can. But then I once I got the job, it was just too busy to do anything more beyond that. Wow. In um, in retrospect, looking back to what what you did back then, um, were they What's the right way to ask this? Uh, something along the lines of like, do you think they should have given you more of a shot back then, or do you think you hadn't you hadn't developed the skills you needed to, uh, to make like the you know publishable campaigns or whatever? I don't think that. I think that every time I got a rejection, it was for the right reasons. Uh, although I may not have realized at the time, even though there'd be a few days of you know painful feelings, like oh man, they really didn't like it. Um, yeah. Would they but, give you feedback? Like, were able a to few judge? people did, and and those are the people that I always value, and yeah. and that's a reason today when someone ever asks me for a critique or yeah. like here's my design portfolio, portfolio, what do you think? I always try and give them the critique because I know what it's like never sure. to get any feedback. It's yeah. like how are you ever going to get better? Yeah, no one yeah. ever tells you. Yeah. So so Dungeon would just basically give me the form letter. Uh, GURPS taught me that you shouldn't be too insistent about trying to you know push a super a supers. Uh, proposal to them. Uh, I think they just they just got tired of it. Um, and then uh, Hero Games just taught me that you should maybe just be patient, you know. And before you you know submit six or seven submissions with no response, maybe you should just you know pull back on the reins a little bit. Yeah. But um, I, I, it would have been nicer, I think, had uh, they been direct more direct earlier about stuff that you shouldn't do. But to be honest, like they were really you know just swamped with work anyway, sure. so it was just yeah. hard for them to get back with you. Yeah. I mean, there's not a there was probably never a ton of money in that industry to begin nope. with, and there's probably a lot of passion, so there was probably just a ton of yeah. And they like, work those editors to death, and the yeah. owners are like swamped. It's just it's just really rough. Like, and then uh, yeah, and if, and if they're able to pay anybody at all, because like I guess they have that, that 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 joke about the pen and paper game industry that if you want to make a small fortune in pen and paper games, like start with a big fortune. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, I'm like, okay, I understand why that is. So. Wow, cool. All right, so then, so then you're working at Interplay, and what was uh, what was the first project you got? Um, the first project was we were supposed to be doing. So we had the Forgotten Realms license and the Planescape license uh, from TSR at the time, which eventually right. became was the. Ghost. I mean, you must have been excited in the sense that, like, these are the guys who made Baldur's Gate, right? Not Baldur's Gate. No, because they had Bard's Tale. Uh, yes, although I hadn't seen, I don't think I'd seen an RPG from them in quite some time, uh, even though they even had an RPG division. So I got there and I was a little frightened that everyone was going to figure out that I was a big sham. (laughs) Um, so I got there, um, and, uh, some of the early projects I worked on was, uh, so we were trying to do a Forgotten Realms RPG. That was kind of the goal and that never really materialized, um, except when Bioware came in with an engine already in place and said, Hey, you know, here's our engine. We want to do this project. And then our CEO of our division was like, no, I think we could take that and make a D and D game. But that was many years after I got hired. So, um, so among the fun projects I got to start with was, um, there was a project called Descent to Undermountain which was Interplay's idea of taking the Descent engine, which was like a combat shooter game, Mm -hmm. a combat MMO shooter game, and then turn that into a dungeon crawler. Okay. Which was not a good idea for various reasons, mostly because the the, the big reason was that Descent had no gravity. And and trying to code gravity into an engine that does not currently support gravity is... (laughs) fun event all in itself um and also it, it wasn't really well supported at interplay and it kept going off the rails and various points and eventually 
I, I'm not I'm not too ashamed to admit this, but I went to my CEO and I'm like uh, it was like after the third lead change on something, and I'm like I look, um, you you said that I could work on Planescape, I want to work on Planescape. I honestly don't believe that I can contribute any more to this project and see that it's going forward. He's like, all right. So then he moved me over to uh, doing all the pre-production work for Planescape. I was able to write all the story, all the dialogues, like all the characters, and just do a pass of that. Mm. Um, and that, that worked out. That was pretty great. But then other projects were like, you know, I did Conquest of the New World design stuff. I did stuff for like Rock and Roll Race, or Red Asphalt, um, Star Trek, Starfleet Academy, like... Interplay would just grab designers. Oh yeah, yeah. so that was fun too because I got got to see how other projects worked and different design methodologies. That was pretty cool. Was was Fallout being made during this time period? Yes, it was. It actually was over. I felt like it was in a division, sort of all to itself, and then eventually gravitated over to Black Isle because I know that some people sometimes get upset when they say, "Oh, well, Black Isle isn't really responsible for Fallout." It absolutely was in production elsewhere at Interplay, but but they're right. Like it started as its own independent project. I've always been confused what Black Isle's relationship was. Yeah. Uh, so, so Fallout was originally a GURPS product, and then the GURPS license fell apart after X period of time. I don't, I don't recall exactly how long. I think I think Tim Kane would probably know for sure. But um, and then once the GURPS license went away, uh, then they're like, okay, well, how can we reinvent this game to be Fallout? And I. I got the impression that people were really worried that it wasn't going to sell quite as well because GURPS wasn't associated with it, when in fact, <laughs> that may have been the best thing for the project because right. the, I think Steve Jackson games, they, they there were things they didn't like about what makes Fallout fall. They, they didn't like the Vault Boy. Okay. They're like, we don't they like... They didn't like the tone? Or they, didn't, I, they didn't like the tone of the guy. They didn't like his icon. They're like, well, this doesn't, you know, this doesn't really jive with us. And like, that's one of the most iconic things about yeah. Fallout. It's a hard thing... It's a hard thing to put your finger on that idea. Like, yeah, yep. Fallout's not the same without that little character. Yep. But it kind of came out of nowhere, sort of. It's yep. just like this, how did that happen? Well, I th- well, okay, so I'm going to speculate because I wasn't there for the yeah, decision. Sure, but sure. Uh, So a big part of Fallout was the idea that all of the super science in Fallout was what people in the 1950s would have right. imagined the future sure. being like. Yeah. So in order to capture that 1950s feel, it felt like that, that Monopoly, that Monopoly yeah. character yeah. seemed to embody it. So that seemed like it'd be a pretty good decision. And then also I think Steve Jackson Games didn't like some of the aesthetics they were doing. Like the opening movie for Fallout, where it's very much like the Vietnam War soldier being executed but it's the power armor guys. Um, they absolutely did not like that. And then Brian Fargo did so Brian Fargo defended it very fiercely, and I think that was one of the many, one of the many reasons that um, that uh, it kind of broke down. But I think one advantage of that was because GURPS has that open system where just about any type of character build allows you to advance through the game. Right. That helped carry over to Fallout too. So that right. ended up being a lot more freeing for the quest design. And I there's so much I loved about Fallout that yeah yeah you know, that that RPG just totally blew me away. Yeah, it's it's a great game. I mean, no doubt. Like, the fact that your intelligence could change your dialogue options. I, <laughs> I was I was like, what the? Yeah, it's probably, so it's, cool. Yeah, it's so simple. Yeah, actually, like, and it's, it, there's it's no new technology obvious. involved. Like, it's just I got to check a, ne- a number on a stat, and then yep. I just change the line. Right. Simple, but it's an entirely new role playing game experience. Yep. I was so wow, I'm so stoked because then yep. like then you choose other stats and other skills. Yeah. And then well, it, it makes perks, people you... wonder. I mean, it's transparent to the player, right? Like they like they get a sense of like, okay, I, I get this ability because of that. So now you wonder all the other things that might open mm-hmm. up. Like I got this low ability here. What part of the game am I not yep. seeing? Right? 
Um, yeah, and the cool part is even when you have that low ability, you're going to see another part that the high intelligence guy yeah. won't see, which is actually which is also kind of cool as well. And then like I know they had, they had moments like in Fallout 2, for example, where like you could have stupid on stupid conversations with NPCs, and then like it would subtitle them into like real speech, <laughs> <laughs> and they would do just clever things like that. And I'm like, you know what? That's that's kind of a neat thing from it for a designer to yeah. play around with. Yeah. Yeah, and the bizarre perks, like there was the bloody mess. Was yep. that one of them? Yeah, and, one of the uh, faves. Yeah, um, there was a lot of audacity to that design for sure. Um, but anyway, so so that was going on. Were you were you playing the game while it was under development? Like, uh, I didn't get a chance to play at Fallout One, um, and actually, uh, Tim Kane asked if I could do writing on it, and I was so busy with Descent. Uh, to under whatever that uh, I actually had no time to do it so I'm like hey you know what I don't have time to it but you should talk to Scott Benny he's a really good writer he does a lot of hero game stuff and then he was at Interplay too and then um, I regret it to this day that I didn't write on it yeah. but um, but then uh, all the the sort of uh, troika of the Fallout leads ended up leaving Interplay during Fallout 2 right and then suddenly we all got conscripted to work on Fallout 2 and finish that up. So they, they chopped up all the areas in the game, divided them up amongst various designers, then we just sort of ran with them. And I got like New Reno and part of Vault City and some special encounters. And then uh, that's kind of how we hit the end game. Okay. Do you remember, do you remember like what you tried to do with, with Fallout 2? Like- yes. Um, so first off, I eagerly embraced the idea that uh, stats affect dialogue. <laughs> Right. Um, and then I try. I had a lot of fun making like really simple quests. Each of us got like one or two page summaries of what the area should be like and what quest hooks they should have amongst the different towns and communities. So once we had that, um, so for example, I took New Reno and I'm like, okay, well, let's just make four crime families, which was a huge mistake. Like that, mm. it was just too much. Um, right. And then, uh, but I need to make sure the enclaves hinted at here, and then. Um, there's one quest item you can purchase from one of the merchants, like a new Reno, and as long as you have all that stuff. And then once I ha- once I had that outline, I'm like, well, here's what would be cool for a thief character to do. Like, here's how a thief character could kill every single mob boss in the game, and none of their henchmen will know. And then I'm like, mm-hmm. and then I'm like, well, it might be kind of cool if you could sleep with the mob boss's wife. Like, that could be kind of cool. And then it's like, <laughs> then I did a whole quest on that, and then like, uh, I just got. Uh, you know, having fun and sort of giving each of the each of the individual families their own characteristics, and then I'm like, well, what you know, what would I want to do in a computer game that'd be fun? So like, there was like, you know, porn studio was 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 fun to do, or like boxing matches was fun to do, and then uh, I don't know, I just like I just sat down, just had fun, and tried to figure out every character build. Like a combat guy can do this, or you can have your car stolen. A thief guy can do this. A speech guy can do this, and then I just went went crazy. Right. How would you test out games like that back then? Well, I actually had two computers at my desk, yeah. and I would build uh, two different builds of characters and proceed to run through each game. So while one loading screen was happening, I would jump over to the other one oh. and test certain mechanics. Yeah. Uh, that was the first time I realized that uh, I better learn how to script because mm-hmm. then I could fix my own bugs rather than giving a list to somebody else who already didn't have enough time to fix all that stuff. Right. Um, Did you guys have your own scripting language, basically? Or? Yeah. Uh, I think it was, uh, I don't recall the exact name of it, but uh, it, it, it seemed to cover all the bases, but it wasn't especially transparent for a, I guess, quote-unquote new designer like me. But um, right. And then, is. of course, we had, the, we had the huge QA staff in the, in the building next door that would run through the game and just try and find new ways to break it. And we had one guy dedicated just to killing everybody in town to make sure it didn't break. But, you know, it was pretty murderous. So how cra- when a game like that came out, which has so many possibilities, and it's hard to cover them all, what... What were the crazy things you saw from the players, like, 
you know that you didn't anticipate um actually uh since that was uh in the days before it seemed so easy to share stuff mm, uh it, it was a little hard to determine what what were the craziest stuff they would do ultimately however one one thing that kept popping up was everyone within a few weeks if not earlier would instantly know the quickest route through the game that would get you the power armor and then take you to the end game so fallout 2 unfortunately had a choke point break where you could like go to the second town or whatever uh, which i think was navarro and then you could steal power armor put it on and then you were good to go for the rest of the game and then just go to the oil rig and blow blow it to hell and that was <laughs> that was the quickest route of the game i'm like okay well that you know we probably should have made sure we, we covered that base but nope yeah so cool all right well maybe we should jump back to planescape then so okay you were that project was just starting, essentially, right? Yeah, yeah they uh, they actually had uh, plans to do, I believe, about three different Planescape games. One was going oh, wow. to be sort of like... Or were a, you familiar with the, the franchise, or whatever it would be called, the franchise? For a few weeks, point? I never actually played it. Like, okay. I, I didn't I didn't quite get it at first. And I'm like, oh, well, this is, this is the D&D setting that encompasses all the other settings. And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. well, that's cool. But then they kept adding more interesting stuff to it. Like they gave the the Githzerai race like more things to do in Planescape because they're more of a plane traveling race, and um, and also a lot of the, the dimension jumping mechanics and the idea of that central hub city sigil was cool and Lady of Pain was interesting. Like and I got really confused because it didn't feel like a D and D setting. It felt mm-hmm. like it did feel very new, and I like the art style for it. Like. Um, Tony Tony Dieterlizzi, I believe, uh, had a lot. It sort of captured the feel for it, so I wasn't really that familiar with it. Like maybe I'd researched it for about two or three weeks before I got the interview, um, and then during the interview, they're like, "Hey, pitch us how you would start a you know a Planescape game," and I'm like, "Well, I would start it after the death screen. I'd, <laughs> I'd do it like, hey, what happens after the main character dies, and here's what would happen." And he's like, "All right, we well, get the job," and I'm like, "Yay!" Wow. And then that ended up being the intro for. Um, well, that's a core concept. I mean, that's one of the things that defines what makes Planescape different. You're not trying to save the world or something. You're trying to figure out what happened to you. It, it is a very selfish game, and I. But but you know, after about ten years of game mastering players, that's really all they care about. They like yeah. they they want their stats, their abilities. <laughs> People care about themselves. They right? want the entire adventure to revolve around yeah. them. And I'm like, okay, well that that seems fair to me. That's the ultimate let's, way to do it. Let's yeah. make this happen. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Cool. So can you need. So what, tell me about the development of Planescape. Like, how did that happen? So um, uh, our CEO was uh, was kind enough to say, "Hey, if you want to take like six or seven months, write out the story, get all the you know the prep work for the game going, uh, just go for it." Uh, so I did. I wrote a lot of the dialogues. Uh, worked with uh, you know try to figure out like all the reference art for the different main characters in the game. And our CEO was pretty clear that we w- we wouldn't have the same number of resources that say Baldur's Gate would have. Right. So like okay, well how do you downscale the game to make it work within any, within the Infinity Engine? Because I think some of the the parameters he gave was it has to be an Infinity Engine game. Right. You only have X number of people to do it. Uh, you, it has to obviously be you know a Planescape game, which ended up being more freeing than I think. Any any other parameter because a Planescape game could almost be anything, um, and that was pretty much it. And then I just uh, then I just started writing, and then I got switched over to Fallout Two for a while, and then went back to Planescape. But because I'd had that opportunity to do all that pre-production work, I actually could just pass out design documents to people and go, mm-hmm. "Here's what I was thinking about for this area." Like if you get like writer's block or stuck on something, like like go for it. But um, you, I mean, you could use this stuff or just develop stuff on your own. Feel free. And then we just went from there. Um, but yeah, it was the first project I was lead designer on, and it was uh, it was quite a ride. Yeah, right. What were your um, 
like what, what what were your goals back then? Like like what did you want to accomplish with this game? Uh, I wanted to show what a role playing game could be because what because mm-hmm. I it, I got to the point where there were certain things about role playing games that started to bother me. One was there was always a standard set of really annoying races that I didn't care about. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's always the elves and the dwarves and the halflings and all that stuff just bored me into tears. And then also uh, I was bored. I was irritated by the fact that when you die in a role playing game, that's probably the point where you're very likely to stop playing it forever. Right. And I'm like, well, maybe there's some other way to still make it a challenge, but yet still keep the game advancing. So right. I'm like, is there some way to twist the death mechanic to make that happen? Um, also, like I'd gotten pretty sick of magic swords. I'd gotten pretty sick of the idea that a game tries to impose a goal on you that you're supposed to care about. Like mm-hmm. if they try and impose a family on you, they try and impose a nation you care about. And everything from game mastering had taught me that players don't care about that stuff. Players yeah. players care about what level they can get to, what spell powers they can get, and they want everything just to revolve around them. So like, okay, well actually there's a way to do that. Like, you know, every NPC you talk to in Torment is has a chance to give you more powers or teach you something about something that you did that you're that you just can't remember. And that, that ended up being like a whole fertile field for design in that yeah. in that respect. So I was I was talking to this morning, I interviewed Nels Anderson, oh. of, you know, designer of Mark Ninja. And one of the games we talked about was Planescape. And, like he literally said that, like this morning on that same couch, you're like yeah, every NBC you talked to, there it was all about you. <laughs> it's because players want to hear people talking about them. It's the ultimate ego stroke. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's 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 cool. Um, it was so true. Yeah. Oh. Well, you were. I mean, you were really swimming against the current with a lot of conventions then of RPGs. Yep. And, I, and I, to be honest, I, I think if it hadn't been an interplay, I don't know if it would have happened because Planescape, like Fallout, was kind of under the radar. Mm-hmm. Baldur's Gate was kind of the big target that people were all focused on. And Planescape and Fallout, uh, like Fallout specifically, was going to be considered to be a B product. They're like, well, right. I, we don't think we're going to get many sales out of this, so we probably shouldn't give it a huge budget of marketing and then like totally took off. Right. Which might have been the worst thing for it because then suddenly everybody started paying attention to it. He's like, oh, wow, well, Fallout. And the guys the guys who were doing it probably didn't want that many people paying attention to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's really bizarre. I mean, I, I know plenty of other stories of publishers where, you know, they put all their attention into something that just goes nowhere and it's the thing they didn't care about. The, yep. um, um, I mean, Sid has lots of stories like that of working on Railroad Tycoon and Civilization. You know, both games and Pirates. Actually, all three of those games were games that they didn't really want to have made. Um, you know, at Microprose, and um, you know, <laughs> um, it's surprising how those things turn out when you actually like uh, care about a certain product and then it pops out there and it doesn't. It's not obviously not true all the time, but man, like and then they take off, it just gets really weird. Because yeah. then, like all these people that don't necessarily know about games, they but want, want to, but want to, yeah, they want a piece of that pie, and like it's you know the, all the marketing folks who, who didn't didn't understand Fallout, and then they kept trying to change key parts of it, and then like it even went down to like a cover art, like the original cover art for Fallout Two was so much better than the the one they came up with, but because mm. the original team understood the transition from one to two much better than I think sure. marketing ever did, but but whatever, yeah, yeah. Um, so with Planescape, um, now presumably you know you have people testing the game for for bugs and whatnot, but mm-hmm. you presumably you also have people playing the game trying to judge what kind of game it is and yep. how fun it is. And were they? 
how were they reacting? Because they were probably like, well, this is really different. Yes, actually, that is almost verbatim what I heard from QA. They're like, this is the strangest game. And they didn't mean that in a good way. Okay. They're like, this is the most, this is like kind of the strangest game that I think we've actually had to test. And then, um, and then also it was disheartening to get feedback, which was true about, well, usually if you choose the longest dialogue option, that, that's the best option. And I'm like, oh, man, I, how could I be so transparent? Um, <laughs> um, but So anyway, uh, so yeah, I thought I was going to lose my job. Uh, and Brian Fargo, oh, yeah. Brian Fargo came in to yell at me about localization because there was a lot of words. There was too many words. There was yeah. too many words. Um, and almost none of the companions got fleshed out as a result of that. But then I'm like, I don't care. Like, it's important to me. So I just did it. And I'm like, if they, if they yell at me, then fine. I can, I'm, I, I love getting yelled at. <laughs> um, so, but it came out, and then the sales weren't so great, but the critical reception was, and Brian was very happy about that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think actually he made one mistake. Well, not mistake, but like, because he was being honest, because uh, he was playing. Because Brian, Brian, Brian was really good about playing all the interplay games, which was very right. commendable. Um, he uh, he made them he made them, he made the mistake of sending out an email and including Ray and Greg from Bioware. He's like, "Well, this Planescape game, well, it's even better written than Baldur's Gate." <laughs> they did not like that, <laughs> so that that was that was one uh, thing. But but it was still, it was still good to hear him hear him say yeah. that. And did uh, you get feedback from the Bioware guys? Like, did they have a different reaction? Yes, to the game? actually, uh, Greg called me up one day and he was concerned that um, the storyline in Planescape was too close to what they were thinking about developing for Baldur's Gate Two to the point that the team felt like they should scrap their story and start over. Really? In what way? Well, I, I actually didn't quite get it. Uh, I, as, as, I, as I recall, Greg explained what they were trying to do with like either immortality or resurrection. And so I listened to him, and I'm, and I'm like, Greg, I, I don't, first of all, I don't think you have anything to worry about. Right. And second of all, I think you'll be surprised by how much a different execution on what seems like the same theme can make it wildly different, and, and no one will draw a comparison. Like I, I was convinced of that, and I, I think they just went ahead with doing the story that they were doing because to me it didn't sound it didn't sound even remotely sure. like. I mean, you can write down a game story and read it, but when you play the game, you're remembering all the stuff you're doing. Yeah, and if they're two different writers, like they're just going to interpret a theme a totally different way, and like and, and Baldur's Gate definitely had its own style, and then that's that's not a that's not a knock or a slam. It's it's genuinely they. They captured the feel of Forgotten Realms, and just executing on that alone would make it totally different than Planescape. Yeah. So how did so? You know, obviously we were working on Planescape at that point. The Infinity, Infinity Engine was available. How did that come about happening? Like uh, the the connection between Bioware and. So uh, our CEO worked with uh, Bioware on a game called Shattered Steel mm-hmm. before they were even involved, before even Black Isle existed. So Shattered Steel came out. Bioware really delivered on that, even though I don't know if the sales were really all that good. It was still a pretty solid game, and they were a very solid developer to work with, which was rare. Sure. Um, yeah. So then uh, our so then um, our our CEO Fergus uh, became head of Black Isle. And he still had a good relationship with the Bioware guys. So they presented to him this, uh, I believe it was uh, Project Infinity engine. They're like, hey, we've got this idea for a game. It's going to be called Project Infinity. 
And he's like, well, if we put D and D in there, mm-hmm. like maybe we've, you know, maybe we could. Was it a, was it a, like a fantasy role playing game at that it, point? I, I believe it was sort of like a fantasy role playing RTS style game. Okay, um, I, 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 it does have. I can see aspects of an RTS. In oh there. yeah, definitely, it definitely was RTS. And to this day, I think that that's that's Baldur's Gate is one of the biggest reasons when people like to cry that well with an RTS interface. Like I don't know if you can really pull off a role playing game. Bullshit. Like Baldur's Gate totally did that sure. and, and really well. Yep. Um, and uh, so then uh, that became Baldur's Gate 1. And it, uh, it immediately, as soon as people heard what the direction was going to be, like, oh, it's going to be like Gold Box, but like reinvented and yep. for the modern area, everybody loved that. They're like, oh my God, nostalgia. And then like this wave of nostalgia hit. We got plenty of plenty of hype from all over the place. And it well, it's did funny, so It's funny to well. think of like, Back then, late 90s, they were already ready for nostalgia. Yep. <laughs> well, it was a really dead zone for yeah. RPGs. Yeah, like, I remember the mid-90s, everyone was talking about RPGs were dead, right? Yeah, because yeah. then, then Fallout and Baldur's Gate hit, and then it was like, those two really just really just sent it over the edge. It was awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, games games industry is weird. I mean, it's not like, it, <laughs> it's so it's like it's dead. It's just like this new thing came along that was so shiny, right? Which was it, basically, right? Yep. And like, it was... So so shiny. <laughs> <laughs> it was almost blinding. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, the games are a fun game. Is still a fun game, right? Yep. So, um, and for sure, a shooter cannot deliver the experience of a long form RPG. You know? True. Uh, although um, I will say, Ultima Underworld, um, mm. even though not technically running around with a pistol or anything, uh, that also changed my idea on what an RPG could be because. I, 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 first of all, I was surprised they'd done a first-person dungeon crawling experience, and then they did it really well. Right. And then the NPC interactions were really well, really well done. Like, the, the, I think there's one level like where you're trying to decipher like the lizard, the lizard man's language, hmm. and I'm like, this feels really weird for a first-person shooter. But I'm really getting into this. And then like at the end of the game, like one of my favorite moments is like, like I was probably about two a.m. on Sunday, and I had to work the next day at Interplay, but I was at Interplay playing this game. And I got to the end. I'm like, oh wow! Finally, I'm going to figure out how to defeat the end boss. And then I, then I get to the final guy who's supposed to tell me what to do, and he goes, "Well, what do you think we should do?" And I'm like, "Oh my god, he has no idea what I'm supposed to do for the end game." And now I have to ask him about it. And I'm like, "Oh my god, that's brilliant!" Uh-huh. So then we had that, the whole Q and A back and forth with this NPC. He was like, "Oh, well, that's a good idea." And then I noticed I was building the building blocks where I where I constructed the strategy for how to be, defeat the end boss. And I thought that was brilliant. And yeah. like they just had so many moments like that in Ultima Underworld. So hearing about the new Underworld game that's coming out got me really excited cool. too. It's it's hard not to think of like an alternate reality where. Um you know, Wolfenstein and Doom didn't happen, at least not then, mm-hmm. because the Underworld games were in, sort of in parallel to those, right? Yep. And so they would have been, like, the branching point for, like, first-person games, yep. right? And, you know, if you... the So the assumptions built into their system would have been the assumptions everyone else started mm-hmm. with, which, like, man, that would have changed gaming. Yep. For sure. And Origin had such a great run with, with games around that time. Like, they just had so many good titles. I was, yeah, they had a really, really good streak going. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Cool. Um, Sadness. <laughs> yeah. All right. So they were making they were making Baldur's Gate, and uh, um, and then because of that, you now have this engine that you guys could mm-hmm. you know, play around with, and um, you know that's what enabled Planescape. And um, did you play Baldur's Gate while it was being developed, or was it? Just uh, I played some you... of it. I, I would I would be I would I would misspeak to say that I finished all the way to the end of end of Baldur's Gate one. I mostly. 
during that time, all I had time for was to play probably more Fallout One than I should have, <laughs> and then I and then I played a good chunk of uh, of Baldur's Gate, but I never actually got to the end. Um, yep. So uh, I had enough to understand what the basic mechanics were, and then after that, it was like 160 hour weeks, just sure. continuously until Planescape yep. came out. Yeah, I actually co-op through both Baldur's Gate one and two. Oh yeah, with like a group of three friends. That's tough. Co-op in those games is not yeah, the easiest thing. Well, it's funny. I just I also just. I got out of a lecture today by um, Kevin Martins, who was, I guess, worked on the co-op mm-hmm. for those games. Um, and you know, he talked about how, like, yeah, we know it was, like, totally janky in a way, but, like, the fun of co-op, like, it was your own story. Like, the, the stuff that was going on Baldur's Gate was kind of like this weird side thing. But when you play with a group of friends, like, it, it's your story. It's yep. that you've, you've been probably playing D&D games together for 10 years, and you, this is just another, you know, this is the next chapter in that other story. I'm impressed, Soren. To do, to do co-op of those games can be, that that's that's commendable. Yeah. yeah, we just, like, we'd have, like, one night every week, we'd just all get together Aww. and, like, you know, go through it. And, you know, it was, like, we have the one guy who's just like, I'm just going like, to crank through this dialogue. Like, you know? Yeah, and that, actually that was the big choke point, because, yeah. like, because you had to do that, that, that was actually the biggest negative about the co-op. I mean, the conversations were cool, but like when only one person is actually making the choices and then you have to weed through those that can get a little exhausting and then it was always like the one guy who just couldn't wait to get to the next level you know and gather your party before adventuring (laughs) you're like oh my god I'm gonna hear that one more time stop exploring that tree and get over here (laughs) we've heard that a few times but we we loved like even like the pre-game which was like we had this long period of time deciding there's all these characters Mm -hmm. we're just gonna play one character what are the four characters are going to pick? Yep. Who's going to be who? What are we all different? You know, what are we all good at? And that character generation is so, it's so key to a role playing game in terms of the fun, in terms of mapping out where you want your character to be and seeing what what perks you could possibly get or like what you know how you want your character to advance. Like that's such a big part of it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's cool. All right. So what? Um, so uh, when PlayStation came out, you say you got good reviews. The sales were just okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, did they continue at least? Like, or did it have a tail? Or um, because it, I know it's a it's a game that I mean obviously there was a Kickstarter and like people yeah, nowadays you know, care about it a I, lot I, much I, more I, than a lot of I, games. I think a small vocal number of people really enjoyed it, um, and but. I think at the end of Planescape, we were so burned out, we didn't want to do another one, which sure. I, think, I think the lead artist blames me too, blames me for it till this day. Yeah. He's like, you could have made it a franchise, Chris. But I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, but Tim, I'm so tired. <laughs> <laughs> was it uh, tough? I mean, were you personally disappointed with what No, happened? I was really happy with how it turned out. I mean, it, we didn't get everything we wanted in it, but I Well, I mean, with maybe that it didn't sell better or whatever. Like, no, I didn't really care. I, I, I'll probably get fired for this too. You were just, you were excited that you made the game that you wanted. As, to as long, as long as no one lost their job over yeah. it and it was a good game, that's the most important thing. And I know that marketing never wants to hear that, but mm-hmm. I felt satisfied in that respect. Now, when did you, when did you start to notice that it had this kind of, significant cult following like uh, probably about three or four years the fact that people were still asking about it even though there hadn't been another game was started yeah. started raising questions and then uh, it just seemed that over the years people would keep bringing it up again and again um, which was which was very nice to hear and then um, we actually had a chance to do the um, to do Planescape as a Kickstarter at Obsidian right and uh, I'll be honest like the idea of being a project director on that was really exhausting and I didn't particularly want to do it Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, uh, Brian Fargo actually secured the Planescape li- or the Torment license. I think because he, he always watches that stuff. He's he's yeah. he's pretty good about that. Um, so he actually had the Torment license, um, and then uh, they were going to do that in Exile. And then he asked if I wanted to be a part of that. I'm like, yeah, like I don't mind. I don't mind being a part of it and weighing in on it. But the idea of of leading another, you know, thirty 
person team on a potential death march is not my idea of <laughs> of fun. It's all, it's 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 relatively exhausting without some more infrastructure around it. And um, is that because you feel you know you're just spread thin already? Or like- yes, uh, at the time uh, there were there were so I example Obsidian. There are many other responsibilities that don't involve game content. And to be honest having those responsibilities and then also being in charge of game content every once in a while yeah. is is rough. It's yeah. really hard. Uh, and I, I it would, seems like you're working on a lot of games. Arguably, if you're in that position, you really need to question whether you should be providing goals or whether you should be providing content. I mean, both can be done, but overall, if you spread yourself too thin, you're really not doing a good job at anything. Yeah. But did you feel kind of like the place, like what you wanted to do with Planescape you had done? Or did yep. you, 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 yeah, okay. Uh, there might have been like a few, a few like minor things. Like I, I wish there'd been more plane jumping, and uh, but overall, or there'd been more factions for you to join. But overall, I didn't. I thought that, um, yeah, I was pretty satisfied with it. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, what happened after Planescape then? Uh, so uh, our CEO gave me some downtime because mm-hmm. he saw how stressed out I was, and yeah. then I was going to the doctor a lot, and then our our VP of marketing who bless her soul came in and talked to me personally. And she's like, well, look, I don't want you to you know, kill yourself over any game. Right. Um, so, you know, please, you know, keep your health in mind. And then, um, so after that was a, the Icewind Dale series. Um, so I worked on NPCs for that, okay. uh, which is pretty low key after torment. And also Icewind Dale is a much different, different style game. Yeah. So with the Icewind Dale series, I also co-op my way through those games, which is a little bit easier because <laughs> yeah. there's there's fewer interactions and it's mostly intended to be much more of a co-op, like yeah. dungeon crawling. It felt built for that. We we loved it. And like, those games were so oh, the dungeons in those games were so beautiful. Like mm-hmm. Crystalax Tomb was awesome, and then like there's that frozen museum at the end. I'm just like wow, like the artist really really did an amazing job with those. Like I loved exploring those environments and like fighting frost giants. It was pretty cool. And yeah, 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 yeah. I really miss. The days of that type of art, where you feel like that was like sort of the peak of two D art. You were adventuring across a painting, and it yeah, was so exactly. beautiful. Like it just, it, it was just breathtaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was. A, <sighs> <laughs> it was a tough transition to three D at that point because, for sure, three D was not going to be able to compete with that. Yeah, at least for quite a while. Yeah, um, and everyone knew that, but there was this weird inevitability about three D at the time. You know, it was just like. Yep. 3D is better. If your game is not 3D, you know... Why wouldn't you do 3D? Yeah, it makes no sense. You're falling behind the times yep. and so on. And, like, I, you know, like... For me, myself, at the time, you know, like I worked on Civ 3, which was 2D. And then we went to Civ 4, and it was 3D. And it was never even, like... A, we never even, like, really weighed it. It was just, like, we have to make it 3D. This yep. is the world we're moving into. Um, but a lot got left behind, I think. Um, and I think it's nice that now... We've kind of been through that transition, and you know now you can make your own decision for your yep. own project, like what's appropriate for it. Yep. Because there's a lot of games that work awesome. You know, Mark of the Ninja, for example, you know, yep. a game that like should only exist in 2D. You know. No, oh, yeah, I think that's very true. Um, also, I think uh, Interplay at the time was being hit by the uh, the 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 obviously huge console market. And uh, that started to affect a lot of the games that we actually had in production because obviously, like Baldur's Gate, did not work was not a console friendly game and fallout wasn't going to be a console friendly game. So that started affecting other titles we did. Like we started doing like Baldur's Gate, Dark Alliance, for example, um, just to try and capture some of that console market. But even so, I felt like we were trying to play catch up with that. And that was pretty rough internally at the studio. Cause that, uh, a lot of games we probably would have wanted to make. We just, we just really couldn't like, you know, fallout Van Buren 
because it wasn't didn't have a good console hook like that got canceled which mm-hmm. was pretty pretty crappy and then uh yeah it was just a rough time for interplay yeah were you involved with van buren oh yeah i, I worked on that for like uh three years oh my it, was, it, was, it was a lot like planescape in the sense like they were like chris uh, if you want to sit down and like spec out all of fallout van buren just go ahead i'm like oh wow you know dream job okay. um but because i was the only person on it like i had to figure out well how do i test all the game mechanics uh how do i do all the area designs and then it occurred to me that if i don't have anybody supporting me I could just run pen and paper games of Van Buren and test mm-hmm. all the turn-based mechanics. Sure. So I spec'd out, well, here's how a ghoul race would work in the game. Here's how a super mutant would work in the game. Here's the perks they get. Here's the traits. And then I gathered about 12 people around the studio that I hoped would work on Van Buren. I'm like, how about we start doing this now? And right. So in the after hours, we started doing uh, two independent gaming sessions. Uh-huh. And then uh, we started testing all the mechanics because everybody had a different build. Like we had like a disgraced boxer from New Reno and then like a super mutant nightkin stealth character, which was crazy. And the classic ghoul mechanic. But because I had to make each of those characters shine from a game master perspective, like you're really contributing this adventure. I had to figure out quest hooks in every single area that I was laying out that supported that character. And then that became part of the area designs for Van Buren. We're like, okay, well... They already adventured to the Boulder Dome, and here's why the Boulder Dome is cool for this type of character, this type of character, for the science character, for this guy. And a lot of that was due to all the play sessions we had. So um, that allowed me to gather like all the reference art for areas. Uh, for any of the developers that were going to work on the title, they were already familiar with the area to be designing. It's like, oh, well, we already adventured to the Boulder Dome, so we already know what it's like. So when we give you the, so when we get the design document, we hit the ground running because I actually already adventured to the location. Wow. So yeah, that was pretty handy. I don't know if that system would have worked in any other type of environment because obviously we had three years where we couldn't really do anything, and you know preparing for pen and paper game sessions you know takes a good part of a good length of time. Sure, but all that all that source material became really rich stuff just to hit the ground running, and I felt like all the research had been done. I just pass off design documents and go from there. But wow, then again, that's interesting. I mean, you're using like human power basically to make up for your lack of yeah, you know, software basically. And the time. nice thing was like all the players had better ideas for the areas than I did. Yeah. So like uh, so like you know one of the designers was thought of many more cool quest hooks for the areas than I did, but then I could just write them down and add them to the design doc later on. Right. So yeah, I think sweet. it. I think it's great to get people in the loop, however you can as early <laughs> as possible. Like they just they can. Uh, okay, this may be a, a weird comparison, but so I. When I, was, when I did Civ 4, Civ's a very classic single-player game, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's the type of game it is. Um, but we made Civ 4 initially as a multiplayer game because I could make the mechanics, and then we could just sit down and play it. Yep. Right? And, like, you could immediately, like, within... I could design something in the morning, test it that afternoon, and then either change it or get rid of it the next day because I immediately saw whether it worked or not. Um, because I was using humans to fill in for the AI, essentially. Yep. I mean, that's one of the classic problems with strategy games is you can design all the rules you want, but until you have the AI to actually use yep. it, you don't know whether it's a good idea Absolutely. or Absolutely. Um, that's really interesting to think that you could you did that, essentially the sort, a similar thing, you know, in terms of, like, building an RPG. Also, a nice thing, too, is the when the develop when the developers and the players... I mean, because I, I, would, I would call out the things that they added to the area, and then mm-hmm. that, that made a richer experience because I felt more collaborative in the design. Oh, yeah. sure. They're like, okay, well, you know, I wouldn't have thought of this quest thread had it not been for your disgraced new Reno boxer, boxer character and here's the new elements that got added thank you and they're like oh well that's that part is mine yeah. like that's the part that I contributed and then everyone feels like they're, they're feeding into Van Buren and it works out pretty well okay cool 
Um, well, I'm sort of afraid of leading to the next question then. So what, dun, dun. what, what happened with Van Buren? Uh, so um, the first thing that happened was the reason there was so much uh, time to spend on Van Buren was because we were working on Baldur's Gate 3. Yeah. And we were developing our own engine at Black Isle, which is always a, a, a fun task, and I right. do mean that sarcastically. Um, so that was not going to be an Infinity game. No, it wasn't. I mean, it, it was going to have some of the, the like the same camera views, and it, it did have three D elements about like it, it was going to feel like a Baldur's Gate game, but it wasn't going to use the Infinity engine yeah. uh, just because I think we'd melt just about every everything we could out of the Infinity engine by the time Icewind Dale hit. And after that, we're like, you know what? We just can't, we just, it's already, it's already creaking at the seams now. We can't really keep doing that, supposedly. At least that's, that's what I, I heard back. Anyway, so we, we're doing Baldur's Gate 3. Um, Interplay is not doing so hot. Yeah. Um, and then word came down after a year and a half of working on Baldur's Gate 3 that we'd lost the D&D license. And Oof. the story we were told was that it was some accounting error yeah, I'm going to say, how is that even possible? That seems crazy. Who knows, Soren? Who knows? <laughs> uh, that that was the question that was floating around Black Isle quite a bit. Because like to have a game canceled because like you somehow didn't give a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Okay, like then you you can beat yourself up over it. But then when you realize Executive Rose not looking out for you, and like they really weren't. Like that, you have no idea what was going on up there. But I mean, presumably the Baldur's Gate games made plenty of money yeah but place, then like, so. I, I guess that that was either being burned in a fireplace or like being well I mean not it. just the fact that they you know got rid of the money but you know it must have been it would have been highly in their interest to make sure that Baldur's Gate 3 happens yeah uh, actually between Baldur's Gate and Fallout those seem to be the two franchises you want to keep pushing because that's what people would ask about so yeah. um, so we we, we discovered that it, at, at that point I guess was uh, Wizards was like well since we're now we now have control of it. We can renegotiate, or like we no, they just, it, just, they just, uh, it just went it away. Just went away. And we, we don't really know all the circumstances. Like at least I don't to this day. So we're sitting there, and I'm like, "Wow, that was a year and a half of work, That's which great. was really great work." Flushed. I'm like, yeah. "Wow, this could happen again, yeah. and it probably will happen again." And at that moment, I'm like, "As much as I love Fallout, I don't think Fallout's going to happen." Like based on everything that I'm getting from the surrounding culture. Yeah. And then, like our CEO left. He's like, he he resigned. Hey, that's, that's that's a big a sign. danger sign. <laughs> and then a lot of other prominent seniors also indicated that they would be doing the same thing. And finally, I'm like, you know what? I just because like I uh, Fergus was a great CEO at Black Isle, and that he would always protect us from the executive row stuff until the point where he couldn't like right. get like having a franchise canceled. So you, you meant you mean that Interplay CEO left. Is that right? Oh, no, actually, Brian Fargo had left, like, many years before that, which is part of the problem, too. And then Black Isle had its own division director who would also protect us from the executive row stuff. And then uh, once he left, we were not protected, and we got to see a lot more of how that worked out. Okay. Because, like, it was really weird. Like, even on um, the day I was – the day I resigned – the uh, the HR department uh, didn't really care while I was, why I was resigning. They only ca- they only cared if I was being poached. And I'm like, you do realize that I'm leaving the company because we lost Baldur's Gate three. Like, right. do you do know that? And the HR guy had no idea what Baldur's Gate was. And I'm what? like, wow. <laughs> I'm like, I don't think I can explain to you the gravity of this situation, but right. I feel better about leaving now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It sucked. Well, it's too bad. It's tough to be a, a division that is you know presumably successful but in a larger entity that basically sucks you down yeah and you and i'm sure they had all sorts like i obviously i wasn't privy to all the decisions or why they were made and there may have been absolutely justifiable reasons why those things happen but then we would 
have these weird weird company meetings where you know the executives would tear into us about like deadlines like which, which is understandable but, but there's certain like business etiquette stuff you don't do like you don't you don't tear people's products apart you know in front of an entire company like that's just not cool like what like what what style of management has taught you to do that like are you right. that are you that petty like you wear diapers like i don't understand what happens i think and i met some of my friends were working on the projects that were getting torn apart in the public and like they would keep their cool during the meeting but like they were genuinely hurt obviously yeah. they're like you know what i'm trying to make the best game i can like and also these games have been doing really well while other games and the company are not doing so well i would appreciate if you'd cut me some slack yeah. but no then it never happened so wow anyway yay so, <laughs> <laughs> sound like you got to pretty bad environment and then eventually of course interplay i guess whatever happened to them. no actually they're still around well they have something it seems like they keep popping up and like well not, i thought they were out of business no they, still in business. they're still using all the back catalog i think yeah. for like tablets and stuff and also they they still have the black isle name and i think they were trying to do a, a crowdsourcing model for that which i don't think went very well yeah um but uh yeah they're, they're still around but i i they're nowhere like yeah there's only a few people here and yeah. there yeah all right well so then what happened after that is that uh so uh, that i resigned yeah point? i resigned and then uh, fergus was like hey do you want to be an owner and i'm like yep and then the guy <laughs> did, I was not expecting that question, but I had a quick answer. Uh, and then how we many just, were you at that point? Uh, actually, only five. Um, that we had five we, founders, basically. Yeah, we actually wanted to have a sixth. We wanted to have an art uh, art owner. Yeah, but we couldn't find an artist to because, uh, like, I I actually don't know exactly why. I think maybe they just wanted a bigger share of things. I don't really know why. Sure. But uh, yeah. ultimately, we got we had three producers. Uh, one tech director, one creative director, and then it would have been nice to have an art director, but we didn't have we didn't have that. So right. it was those five, and then we were inside uh, Fergus's attic yep. for about eight months, and his wife was very patient with us. Mm. And then people started leaving Black Isle and joining us, and yeah. then our company started building up and building up. And then Fergus used his connections with Bioware, who didn't want to do another Knights of the Old Republic game under the conditions, I think, that LucasArts was asking them to do it. So then we got it, which was great. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, the same happened with Never Winter Never Winter Nights two, and then that sort of gave us a foundation to keep making uh, other role playing games after that, and it's sort of been a roller coaster. Right. Cool. Um, so uh, yeah, I guess we should probably talk about the Obsidian years then. Like, so the first thing you did was the Nice Roller Republic two. Were <laughs> you? Were you? Um, so you're saying you're creative director. Were you actively involved with that project? Like, yeah, I was. I was, or? I was a lead designer on it. I did a lot of writing for it. Uh, it absolutely needed more time to cook. And mm-hmm. now, when you say lead designer, does that mean you're also like you're designing the combat and like? No, uh, like it depends. Like... Uh, so, one, I think one of the failings that you can do with a project is you give one person too many hats. Yeah. Um, and usually, the limit, I think, is two. Uh, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I think what the problem with uh, Knights was, I was an owner. Yeah. And then also I was lead designer. Yep. And then also I was creative lead. Yeah. And I'm like that was just too much. So, but what I tried to do was make sure that we'd done what we do with Fallout 2, where every individual designer had their own area they could worry about. And then also for a lot of the system and combat mechanics, uh, I did. I asked uh, one of the other designers to sort of be be empowered to hold on to that, and then they would be the caretaker for that because I knew I wouldn't be able to, to handle it. And also I didn't think that I was as skilled as that other person was when it came to combat mechanics. Like I, I, I had like overall goals where I'm like, hey, it'd be cool to have prestige classes, um, and here's some cool other you know Sith types you could do. But that that was more of a creative suggestion. Now systematically, how would you make that happen? And then they would just take that and run with it. Okay. Um, what was it like to like 
started a company? Like, like were you able to do things definitely different? Than it was pretty rough because suddenly you realize everything that you don't have as being part yeah. of a larger company. Like you don't have a huge QA testing team. You don't have IT. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have your own audio department. Like all these things. Like I didn't realize exactly how much we were able to borrow from other projects in terms of animators and artists when you're part of a huge company like Interplay. Um, so... We definitely felt the lack of that. And then um, it also put us in a position where it was very hard to leverage with contracts. It's like it's one thing to be the publisher and then obviously to be a developer and suddenly find yourself on the other side of the table where you suddenly realize you basically don't have much leverage in this conversation whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was pretty rough. But um, over time, after Neverwinter 2, we started being able to get a lot more support personnel and a lot more IT and then... You know, we actually get people to actually help, you know, set up our web page and monitor our forums and a lot of stuff that I think people take for granted, but it's all very expensive in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. You have to figure out a way to justify it. Yep. Right off the bat. Which yeah. Is, which is really hard. And it's really hard to, to put that money into contracts with publishers because they only care about making that game. And as far as support for that game is concerned, they don't have that much uh, uh, stake, I guess, in in supporting activities like that that don't directly contribute to the game but yet our IT is pretty important making sure the computers work guess what pretty important testers testers on site guess what pretty important (laughs) yeah yeah Uh, well what were what were your hopes though at this time like what did you wanted to do with founding a company we wanted to do exactly what we were doing at Black Isle but for ourselves yeah. Because what we were getting tired of was we had great ideas for role playing games games that we wanted to do but the company wasn't able to support those efforts at all. So like we ended up doing like Infinity Engine clones for a while because those were the cheapest things to do and they generated revenue. But then they wanted them done faster and faster. But like, you know, if we ran our own company, you know, we could do more, you know, more RPGs that we wanted to do. And but weirdly enough, almost as soon as we got to Obsidian, we ended up, you know, obviously just doing more franchises. But right. at least they were franchises we never would have had a chance to touch before, like Star Wars. Sure, we couldn't have done that in Interplay, and yeah. um, so were, pretty, we had, were people pretty excited to be working on that. Oh god, they were. Oh, they, yep, I was. I initially wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody else was, and I'm like, oh, Star Wars game, give me, give me a break. <laughs> Uh, but then after a week into it, I suddenly remembered all the things I loved about Star Wars when I was young. Yeah. And then I'm like, well, maybe like all the stuff that I don't care so much for now, I could just make part of the game. <laughs> <laughs> and then that, and then that ended up being kind of refreshing. And then, um, well, yeah, I'm curious, like what, um, what did you sort of tweet to make the Star Wars game that you wanted to make, basically? Uh, I asked a lot of questions about the Force. Mm. because I didn't understand the Force. And also, I didn't like the Force. I like I liked Yoda's explanation of the Force in Empire Strikes Back, because I'm like, wow, this feels like a wonderful, beautiful abstract of, you know, the potential for, you know, humans, like, you know, being more than they are, or any creature being more than they are. And I'm like, wow, when Yoda said it, it's beautiful. But when then... You know when it's midichlorians, and then when it's then when it's predestination, suddenly yeah. like what all happened? the magic and the beauty goes away, and that gets me. That got me really mad because then I'm like, well, so basically the force is causing all these people to die just because it feels need to be the need to be in balance. And then I got really mad, and I'm like, well, man, I <laughs> I probably turn away from the force at that point, or I'd show all the really like the bleak aspects of it, and then. And then also, I was also not convinced that the Sith teachings were wrong. I'm like, there's, there are certain things the Empire did well. And there's certain, I like, and I think you know sometimes like 
the school of hard knocks. Sometimes you, just, need a little, you need a little order. Yeah, and the Empire was great about that. The Empire, you know, they, <laughs> they, uh, you know that, and and the Emperor was like that too. It's like you know what I the 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 Republic was a mess. Yeah, they were arguing. The Jedi's were incredibly arrogant. Like, sure, okay, it's time for time for a change. Yeah. So. Okay. So how did how did you express those ideas in the story? Uh, I did it through companions. We had uh, one uh, one ex Sith Lord join your party, and she would just ask you a lot of questions about why you did thing the things you did, and she had her own opinions on why you did the things you did, and why charity may not always be the best thing for people, and. And you wouldn't have to agree with it, obviously, but the fact I, I wanted her to raise the same questions that I did about yeah. the Force and the Jedi structure, and then whether, whether embracing the Force, either dark side or light side, was really a good thing to do or not, or whether there was some other option right. that the, that the universe should try and explore and try and get out of the tyranny of the Force. Um, but uh, that, but that was some of the stuff that I, I, I had questions about and wanted to explore in the game, and I think that it it ended up being I, I was able to do those things mostly because I think LucasArts wasn't paying much attention to it because mm-hmm. episode 3 was coming out at the same time yeah. they, were, they were all way too busy to yeah I was about to ask did you have some interesting directions with LucasArts or no they actually had, they actually had uh, they actually had five or six comments about the whole game wow and I think one was a misspelling and then one was uh, a <laughs> One was a Deveronian's horns are too long and one character model. And like, it was stuff like that. We're like, <laughs> wow, that's, all right. not, that's not what you usually hear from them. But uh. No, and actually, but to be honest, like one of the things we tried to do at Obsidian was if we're going to work on a franchise, yeah. it's one of the designer's principles that that we drive home is that you have to know that franchise. Like you should never have to have a conversation with a publisher where you're breaking something that they're doing yeah. because you should already know what the right thing is. And that was true of South Park. That was true of like the Forgotten Realms. All of those things, we expect the designers to be enmeshed in that world because it's part of a designer's responsibility. I mean, we have to work with a ton of different franchises. You have to know that franchise and be able to write for it. Like, you've got to love the fact that George Lucas puts extra vowels in. You name your characters <laughs> that way because you're going to love it. That's, that's the way you should name characters right. in the Star Wars universe. Yeah. So. Wow, cool. Yeah. Um, so did you work much on Never Neverwinter Nights 2 or was that yeah, a parallel I worked, team? I worked on uh, the companions and then uh, some of the major NPCs. The overall story and the and the sort of like summary of the companions was written by the lead designer and then I developed them from there. Um, and then uh, I also got to work on the expansion pack. Well, did Neverwinter Nights 2 expand the... I, pl- I played a lot of the first because I was really excited about the idea of kind of like the, you know, people making their own modules and just like, you know, downloading or whatever. Like, so was that a big thrust of Neverwinter Nights 2 or was it kind of like more content? Uh, 2 was um, it, it did have a tool set I don't think it was robust as anybody wanted it to be uh, mm-hmm. it was mostly a resource issue and Atari and us didn't have a lot to throw at it I don't think the mod tools were quite as good in all respects as the as the first Neverwinter um, mm-hmm. Is is modding something that generally interests you? Interested you guys or no? Uh, we we recognize the importance of it, and I still think it's important to this day. I think a lot of the best creative um, uh, designs actually come out of giving the community all the tools and seeing what they come up with. It was a big part of Fallout New Vegas. Yeah. especially the DLCs because we just went through a lot of mods that people developed to see what people felt was lacking from the main game that they actually were developing new content like usually home bases were the big thing people okay. people like making better housing than we put in New Vegas and they had incredibly creative ways for taking the existing scripting tool set and just making cool encounters and cool setups with those that uh, I don't think we ever would have like realized on our own Like, and that applied to Neverwinter Nights too as well because 
uh, the community actually, for example, had better AI scripts really? than, than we had developed. So we actually uh, commissioned those guys um, to actually use their AI sets and their AI scripting versus ours just right. because they had done a much better job with it. Yeah. Money is so interesting because it's like the community is often just able to do things you can't do internally. Just they just have all reason. this time and yeah, they, they yeah, don't have to worry about like the game getting released. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they, can just, they can just focus on these very specific things, which like when you're working on a game, you're just so scattered. You know, you have 10 things you got to spin Exactly. At once. Um, but it's it's awesome. It's there. I mean, it totally makes sense that modding should be great for RPGs. Like D and D is like kind of the original moddable game, yep. right? Like, I mean, here's your rule set. Here's your creatures. Go. Yeah, yeah. It's just like here's your graph paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like part of the DNA. You know. Um, cool. All right. Well, so what uh, what was after Neverwinter? Then? Uh, let's see. After Neverwinter. Um... Well, there was a slate of projects. We uh, it seemed like for once we'd have a chance to do a RPG that we wanted to do, and I mm-hmm. uh, and it was actually more what our CEO and what our tech director wanted to do. They wanted to do like this, um, the sort of stealth first-person shooter game. Uh, so this which is could, this is Alpha Protocol. Yeah, and yeah. so. Um, However, they weren't directly involved with it, so they actually passed that vision off to another team to the to the team. And I don't know if the team was quite as excited about that, or they had much different ideas for how to bring that about, which mm-hmm. caused... That was my first experience, where if you put everybody at the same position and they disagree, if no one's going to... If no one has the power to make a decision, you're in a lot of trouble. Right. And uh, so... What, the, were the, what was the disagreement? Like, what were the um, different decisions? Um, there was a difference between, like, creating something like Metal Gear Solid. Okay. Uh, there was a difference between making more of a first-person, strictly stealth game there was differences on how to do the stealth mechanics there was differences on how to do the mini games there was a lot of disagreement um throughout the core systems which was unfortunate there was no one person making a call there was yeah. a lot there's a lot of soft decisions being made but nothing really and a lot of it was just due to the fact that all all three of the core leads just did not agree in the type of game being mm-hmm. made which caused a lot of problems yeah, and normally in the games you worked on in the past did it just happen that most people were on the same page or did you usually have one person who was like kind of the ultimate uh, it's usually a mixture of both. Uh, usually, right from the outset, like there, you, you know who's in charge. You know who your superior is, even, yeah. even at the leads level. Like, there's always one person that, that's sort of like carrying the torch, and that's 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 always been the case. Ever Alpha Protocol was an anomaly. Okay. Um, ever since then, there's always been it's always been clear what the hierarchy is, and if there's ever anything unclear then i ask a lot of questions until i know what that hierarchy target is and then i make sure everybody else knows what that hierarchy chart is like i think sometimes my like ceo thinks it's weird that i ask that but i'm like dude at the end of the day i seriously need to know if there's a dis- disagreement like who makes that decision yeah. because i will do it like yeah. i just need to know who the vision holder is and then we just go from there like and i will embrace it but you can't have two people like in this sort of limbo state where they're yeah. they're off doing their different things. So that'll just kill a project, yeah. and, and we have we have evidence of that. Yeah, you know, I told you, I think split vision is deadly for a project because it's there's so many different ways to make great games. Like both paths could be great. Yep, and that's why it's so hard to have these arguments. Is like neither person is wrong. It's just like you need to get everyone pointed in the in the same direction. Yep. Um, no, I totally I totally agree and I think that obviously like a, and it's any developer's responsibility that once your lead says here's the goal and here's the path we're going to take to get there then you embrace it yeah. and then you just go from there but then, but that road has to be clear yeah so what did what did you want to do with Alpha Protocol um, so I'll be honest I didn't want to do anything okay. uh, because I was working on Aliens at the time oh okay and I was really enjoying Aliens uh, until it got cancelled yeah. yep. <laughs> uh, but then I got moved over to Alpha Protocol because there was all these uh, problems at the lead level yeah um, 
So we had restructuring for that, which is always fun. Yeah. Um, I, do, I do mean that sarcastically. Uh, and then for the next two years, uh, we redefined the hierarchy. Um, we got a what the equivalent of project director, who, who's the guy who holds the torch for everything, and then everybody reports to him, including the producers, which is great because then because that, the project director like is in charge of the fun too. Like he's not there to dictate schedules or tasking. He's there to make sure the game is fun. And then he has a lead producer that's his conscience and goes, well, I know that all, I know all these things could be fun, but here's the time it'll take. So tell me which is the most important and we'll right. go from there. I'm not telling you no on any of these things, right. but be time conscious. Um, so that happened. And then uh, I was, uh, I, w- I say sort of lead designer in Alpha Protocol in the sense that I wasn't, I wasn't in charge of area design mm-hmm. and systems were actually in, were actually being held by both Sega and our project director. And then they had a system designer helping them out. And then mostly I was lead designer for all other aspects in terms of like management and making sure everyone was uh, divided up amongst the areas. And then I would also do creative lead stuff, including writing for a lot of the game and uh, making sure that was satisfying. Because I think the the first draft of the storyline we had was, was pretty good, mm-hmm. but what it wasn't was it didn't really allow much variation off the path. And uh-huh. that's, that kind of isn't one of our principles at Obsidian. We want a lot of... Even if it seems like it breaks something, that you want the you want the story to be more in the players' hands rather than ours. Yeah. So, and yeah. and cinematics made that tough, and I that was that was my first exposure to cinematic uh, storylines, and I feel like there was a lot of like choose your own adventure stuff in Alpha Protocol, but I don't know if it was really the most freeing storyline in the end that it that it probably could have been, but it was still fun to do. It was still, yeah. still a fun experiment. What did you What did you like? I mean, I. I know it's a game that's sort of a mixed reception, um, <laughs> but I also know that there's a, there's a group of players who have very positive, like have a very st- strong feelings that there was something there's something really special about that game. Um, what did what did you like about Alpha Protocol? As a well, there were a number of things that I like about it that I had no involvement in. Mm-hmm. One was um, so our first creative lead, Brian Brian Matsoda, who uh, was working on uh, Dead State, and also he worked on uh, I think Vampire. The, tro- the Troika version of Vampire that had all the great characters you could talk to. He dev- he proposed this dialogue system that had a sense of urgency about it. Mm-hmm. And normally, I, at first I was really suspicious. I'm like, well, I'm not sure players want to rush through a dialogue. So the way this worked is you, you had some choices and you saw the timer. Like, yeah, you got, you, you got an adjective about how the attitude you wanted to project. You hit a button, but you had okay. to do it within a certain time frame right. or else the game the game would default to a certain option. Um right. Generally, the last option you'd chosen in the previous uh, conversation path. Right. Um, and I wasn't sure that was going to work. But that worked great, in my opinion, for an espionage game. Like, it made you feel like you were in 24 of the series. Sure. Which was great. So yeah. I I was doubtful of that, but in the end, I loved it. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I liked I liked that. I also liked the, the idea that you could do intelligence research on different NPCs and figure out what attitudes they responded to. Not that they'd not, not whether they liked the attitude or not. But whether a certain attitude would provoke them into doing something, It'd be like, effective. Yeah, like if you were really aggressive with someone, suddenly he'd move guards from one area to another. That's important intel. Like suddenly he, he suddenly gets paranoid. In which case, when he diverts all those guards from the warehouse mission over to this, like the mansion mission, then you can go to the warehouse mission, accomplish that with much less guards. And that's an example where you're where doing research and then using your speech skills, you can solve like a little puzzle and do a setup that way if you want, like. And there'd be different different reactions depending on what sort of attitude you projected. Um, so that was kind of cool. Um, I did enjoy the branching. I did enjoy the fact you get all the bad guys on your side hmm. just by showing them that you had a better plan than hmm. the bad guy did. Because which I learned from Fallout One. Fallout One was right. a, was the pinnacle of 
showing the bad guy he's wrong and why, which was the best moment in gaming as far as I'm concerned, where my speech <laughs> character is explaining methodically why his plan won't work. Like, that's great. Like, I've never experienced that before. But I made sure Apple Protocol had that in it, too, and that was fun. Um, but, yeah, uh, and then uh, a lot of the system stuff... Uh, I thought I, I kind of like the mini games. I don't. I, I don't. I know a lot of people uh, may not have responded quite as well to those. Um, and the stealth mechanic came online too late. I think to really be a strong part of the game. And then there was one aspect of the shooting that I didn't like, which was what you see on the screen may not translate to the player because of some numeric skill off screen. And what I mean mm-hmm. by that is like, oh, because your gun skill is like 75%, even though your cursor is lined up and shooting somebody, you'll miss. Like right. I've never, yeah, I'm like, awesome whoa, rough. like, whoa, what decision is that? Yeah. But that, but there were some stuff that was dictated to us. So we had yeah. to kind of deal with that. But overall, I think that the, um, that was kind of a challenging project. Um, again, a stronger hierarchy would have helped. Uh, I also think that uh, it speaks to please don't design levels or move people around from design aspect to design aspect until you have all the core systems absolutely figured out because otherwise you're gonna waste a lot of time. Like if you if you don't if you don't know how far someone can jump, don't <laughs> don't make a single level until right. you figure that out. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, can't figure out how far the weapons can shoot. You don't design the single arena combat until you're huh. absolutely sure of that. And Alpha Protocol had a lot of changing mechanics like that that made it really frustrating. So, right. I mean, it was a pretty different game in a lot of ways for for based off of your license. Yes, it was so. a it was a very weird tangent, and also I think the fact that the core vision holders also weren't part of helping establish the direction. I think that caused some issues as well. Uh, I, and, and to be honest, they were just too busy. But over the same time, I think in those situations, what you want to do is explain generally what you want to do to the team, then see what vision they come up with, and then fully support that sure. because they're the ones on it 24-7. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. All right. Um, so what's, what's, is, this, is this New Vegas time at this point, or is there something else? Well, I'm trying to remember, actually. It's been uh, so Alpha Protocol. So Aliens got uh, canceled, which was also a Sega. Um, mm. and we, were having, we were having a good time with that, but it just didn't work out. Yeah. I don't know why. Um, uh, and then we did Dungeon Siege 3, which I wasn't a part of, um, and we had to make a console version for that. And I think that that was a that was a good experience because finally we were working with our own engine, mm-hmm. which we had gotten from the Aliens game. Strangely enough, oh okay, yeah, because you, uh, you still control the tech. So. Yeah, Sega let us have the tech on the contract, which actually ended up being the the biggest positive of that. Because then suddenly we just we we took all the resources that those milestones had paid for for the tech, and we're like, okay, well at least now we have an engine. Yeah, and then because it was our engine, we understood it a lot better yeah. than every other engine we've had sure. to work with. So uh, we used that for Dungeon Siege Three. That ended up being a pretty solid game, um, I, uh, but again, the critique was there wasn't the, the biggest oversight was, you know, Dungeon Siege is a multiplayer game, and and I don't think Dungeon Siege Three was as, was as multiplayer friendly as it should have been, yeah. uh, and I, I think that was a decision made early on, and I, I still don't understand all the all the reasons for it, but um, uh, and then also we were we got the uh, contract to do another Fallout game, mm-hmm. which was fantastic. Because then we could take all the ideas that we had for Van Buren, okay. and then and then take those into the new the, the Fallout New Vegas. Is that right? You can crack the box open and pull out. Yeah, a lot, a lot of, of the ideas changed. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them mutated in really weird directions. But overall, because we were so familiar with the West Coast Fallout, we just took it and ran with it. 
Was that a nice feeling for you? Like, oh, feel yeah. like you know, oh, all God. this old work that you're proud like, of? Oh, yeah. We're like, oh, my God, we're back in Fallout again. But at the same time, it was a different one than we remembered, so it was still fresh and interesting. But we could still, like, take old ideas that we developed, even for as far back as the pen and paper game, and put that into New Vegas. Like, all the super mutants in New Vegas, the Nightkin guys that are going crazy with the Stealth Boy technology. Like, that was actually developed for the pen and paper game. But then we were actually able to bring it you know, back to the players in New Vegas. And there was a whole bunch of stuff like that, which was, which was a real blast to, to resurrect and sort of, like, like, like you say, crack up in the box. Right. So it's Fallout, Fallout 3. That's a pretty, um, you know, ambitious project to you yep. know, bring, bring Fallout, you know, into, into the modern world. So what I'd like to hear, so what did you like about what Bethesda did and then what did you want to do once, you know, you guys got a chance to work on uh, New Vegas? So uh, Bethesda had a really challenging... Uh, they had a challenge in the sense they had to reintroduce the world to what Fallout was because it had been such a long time. Yeah. And I think the way they did it was good. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, 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 I played that. I'm like, oh, I, now I know what it's, what it's like to feel like a vault dweller, which is an important part of the Fallout universe. Also, what Bethesda excels at, and it's a very much a core part of Fallout, is that open world exploration. Like that, And they've nailed that. Like, I feel like I was exploring the Capital Wasteland. Like, that was incredible. Um, I also feel like they had a pretty good sense uh, for the pillars of what made Fallout Fallout in terms of, like, ambience and science and technology. It was really cool. They brought the Enclave back. I thought the Enclave wasn't really well done in Fallout 2. Um, no, but overall, uh, I, 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 thought, uh, I thought it was pretty good. I thought VATS was a pretty good uh, way of compromising with turn-based Right. You know, versus a real time action, which a lot of role players aren't the world's best, like, you know, Twitch players. But sure. but Vats was a good compromise. Um, yeah, so there's a lot to like about it. And they had a lot of really great design principles in Fallout 3. Mm-hmm. One is, I always felt like every obstacle they included in Fallout 3, with the right player skill, it was always an opportunity and not just a trap. Like landmines. Okay. Like, you, if you had enough skill and skill like literal like numbers and also like twitch skill you could add those to your inventory rather than blowing up so mm-hmm. suddenly they were an opportunity and not just a trap right and then like i felt like every time i hit a dead end in a fallout 3 dungeon there was always loot containers there so mm-hmm. a dead end wasn't like a negative it was like oh it's a, you know it's a chest you know it's like a loot opportunity that's pretty cool uh, and there was a whole bunch of stuff like that where i felt like they they turned a lot of obstacles on their heads and made them more things the players could actually enjoy as opposed to just frustrating them. So and that was one that was one design element I really liked about it. Okay, cool. And so then what did you want to do once you started working on it? Um, so I wasn't the project director on it, and um, uh, I transferred over from Alpha Protocol like halfway through. But some of the pillars were had already been defined by Fallout 3. Right. And, okay, here's what made Fallout 3 successful. And there was a few things. One was they had a signature city. So we're like, okay, well, if, if, and and Bethesda made it pretty clear that they just wanted us to be on the West Coast. Yep. And so we're like, okay, what's a West Coast city? Well, okay, well, Vegas. That was that was a pretty easy decision. Um, also, we wanted to make sure we included a lot of sort of the southwestern elements that made Fallout Two and Fallout One what they were. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the creatures like geckos would come back. Uh, a lot of the like the the signposts like NCR. A lot of organizations that people remember from the from the first games. We wanted to bring back. Um, our project director wanted to redesign some of the systems and some of the skill sets. Uh, he also wanted to add more functionality for some of the skills, like for new, new special moves for melee combat. Because unarmed and melee could get pretty boring in some respects. But 
if you set it up so that once you hit a certain level in melee, suddenly you got new weapon options with melee with 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 specific melee skills like the golf club or the baseball bat, and suddenly you could do like special moves with those. That made those skills more interesting. There was a whole bunch of stuff like that, but. Um, yeah, and then also we wanted to do a lot more with companions because mm-hmm. companions are always really important to us. So we wanted to make sure they had their own quest arcs and ways you could you know modify their personalities and make them better, or make them worse. Um, yeah, um, but that, that was, those were a few things we wanted to do with it. All right, cool. Um, so what's up? Is the Kickstarter after that? Or yeah, the um, we decided to. So Double Fine obviously had its huge success. Yep. Um, and then also Brian Fargo was the next one, and he got Wasteland 2 funded right. incredibly well. And then it seemed natural for us to pursue a Kickstarter. So we sat around the studio and we're like, okay, well, what would be a really good combination you know, of design elements for a Kickstarter project? And it felt like doing a blend of the Infinity Engine games as a Kickstarter seemed like a natural fit. And then that mm-hmm. became Project Eternity, and that did, yeah, that did really well. Um, it was a huge morale boost for us in the sense that, you know, it's right. really great to see all the fans coming out with like lots of support for that. Um, and it was stuff that we already understood how to do back from the Black Isle days. So we, uh, we were able to hit the ground running with that. We've, you know, tinkered around with Unity to figure out what its functionality was. We were able to do the, the sort of painted backgrounds and environments that we were so used to from the Affinity Engine games and then uh, sort of create a more, a similar D&D experience that we thought would, you know, once again do a, a nostalgia jump. From, right. the, from the old uh, from the old Infinity Engine games, so, but yeah, no, it, it's been really good. Uh, what was your when you started the Kickstarter? What did you guys think was going to happen? We thought we'd hit our funding goal. We didn't really realize we'd hit it quite so quickly. In fact, we hit it so quickly that we didn't really have stretch goals yeah. set up quickly <laughs> enough. And then, um, so we had to do that in terms of what new content can we and, add. And, and was this a project that you felt like this was basically kind of the only really way to fund something like this? No, it just seemed like the thing that we wanted to do, and it seemed also like a natural fit for the studio because we had um, we had Tim came from Fallout. Uh, right. We had a lot of other uh, RPG veterans of the studio that were known for things like the Icewind Dale games. Um, then, uh, then also uh, there was the Planescape Torment Infinity Engine angle uh, with me being involved, and it seemed like if we developed a game that used pillars that we all really just normally had gravitated towards, that seemed to be something we'd be excited about, and hopefully the players would also be excited about because they they already proven they liked games like that. So right. we may not get we may not, you know, raise a ton of money, but you know, we have enough to actually make a game that, you know, would, would hopefully be profitable that people really enjoy playing yeah. and work and we enjoy working on. Yeah. But I mean so far for the first time you're making a game on your own terms, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're making it exactly the way you want to. Yep. So I mean that must have been pretty exciting. Actually well I would say a caveat to that I'd probably say no to that because I think a lot of the system design for Pillars, which so Project Project Eternity became Pillars of Eternity right. once it got an official name. I think a lot of the community feedback resulted in a lot of system changes uh, okay. for the game. I think a lot of the core pillars, the principles for the game, ended up being the same in terms of like, hey, it was kind of a Baldur's Gate experience. But there was a lot of system redesign and tweaking as a result of community and early access feedback, which I think was great. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's generally a positive thing. Oh, dude, I love early I, I, I know some people get, like, really terrified about, like, early reviews or people getting pissed off in an early build. But, man, you find so many of the stuff that people would get pissed about in the final version of the game just, yeah. by, get, just by having more eyes on it. And yeah. I'm totally and totally on board with that. Yeah. And you, can, you, can, you have time to do something about it. Yep. You know? and we're, Such we're, a relief. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, was this happening based off of they were reading your design docs, or there was a prototype, or like how did no, this it was, uh, it, was just, it was through beta releases, and then also uh, okay. or the early access, and then also uh, we would do blogs and updates describing what the system mechanics were, or showcase the interface and go, here's how the interface is going to work, and then people would have feedback based on those things. Okay, so when did you make the first prototype available? Um, you know, to be honest, I don't recall the exact date. It was a while um, ago. It was like yeah, it was. Uh, I I can't recall. Unfortunately, I can't recall the exact. Date. It was. Uh, I, I would just be guessing, so I'd hate to quote. Sure, right, right. But uh, I guess what I mean is, like, how fast how fast were you guys adapting to, like, did it, like you, it came out, and was it just, like, immediately you saw there was a whole bunch of things you needed to change? Um, a lot of it was, okay, so uh, I, I should probably do another caveat here. The, the involvement I had with Pillars was writing two companions and having occasional feedback on the story. Right. And then the story wasn't included in early access because that was the one thing that we didn't want to share with people. Oh, that's interesting. So then I, so the whole feedback loop for that, I'll be honest, I had to hear about secondhand. Um, uh-huh. So a lot of the system tweaks and feedback was actually handled by other designers okay. responsible for those. Okay. So that I, if I could speak to that, I would, but I, just, but sure. I, I would probably not. Okay. not so how well did you done. release an RPG without a story then? Uh, well, you give a sample of what the quest would be like and a sample of, uh, of how, how, how companions could travel with you, but you don't give them like all the all the setup you like introduce an isolated section of the game uh-huh. and you give them a sample of what that what that story dialogue experience is going to be like hey here's how the scripted interactions are going to work like here's how you would solve puzzles in the game right. like here's how a typical quest can be assigned here's the consequences and this is this would sort of like be a standard example of what one quest in the game might be like with all its twists and turns okay. what so do you like think about dem- that it's like a demo level exactly of. okay well, that's really interesting i didn't for us, I mean, we just went up in early access, and it's just it's just the whole game, and it's a strategy game. So why would you, you know, you might as well just give the whole game away, right? Yep. Um, and I always assumed that like going early access is a big challenge for story based games. Yep. And I never really, I never really thought of sort of chopping it up. But. Well, Wasteland Two did an interesting thing because uh, the which I which I worked on for quite a while. The um, they actually divided the Arizona and Los Angeles segments, so Los Angeles wasn't initially available, and all you would do is adventure through Arizona, which was pretty much anywhere from 30 to 50 percent of the game which is yeah. pretty great um that's pretty hell of a lot of material to give to people and I, that that worked out pretty well for them um mm-hmm. and uh and, and also because there was that clean break between traveling to los angeles from arizona that that was a very natural break to provide for early access right okay cool so now we're basically up to the present day more or less and uh, like uh so look you know sort of now that you've been making games for 20 years you know do you have a design or a writing philosophy that you would generally approach games with now? Probably shitting myself in the foot, but I think that writing is overrated. <laughs> um, I think that especially after the experience on New Vegas, uh, doing more of a systematic freedom for players to allow them to tell their own stories, especially as seeing what they share on the net okay. and what they actually talk about. This mm-hmm. also bleeds back to my Game Master days where the right critical hit at the right time is far more interesting story than say two months you spend on writing a quest and having all these things you think are you think is cool. Ultimately the creative ultimately that critical hit to the bad guy before you even encounter the end game, like that ends up being far more important to a player right. than anything you could do. And that's more of a systematic thing. And um, what were those elements in New Vegas, for example? Um so were first like the factions or uh, they... well first off just the fact that um you the Reputation mechanic switching was one of those. Yep. The fact that you could create interesting situations as a result of those reputation mechanic switching was great. So, for example, um, 
you could piss off like NCR and go to bed and wake up and they would, you know, their, their troops would be there to attack you. But mm-hmm. then you could also piss off Caesar's Legion and get the same result. Yeah. But then what no one had really thought about is you could piss off both of them. Yeah. And they'd both show up, but they wouldn't attack you. Mm-hmm. They, systematically, they would attack each, each other because they hate each other. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, and yeah. then that's great because that was an totally unexpected result, but that makes for a far more interesting story. Um, yeah. Also, uh, from a narrative point of view, uh, the idea of prop placement mm-hmm. uh, was far more interesting in telling stories than I think having an NPC to talk to in some mm-hmm. situations. Like we were doing um, uh, one DLC, Old World Blues, and we didn't have, we had like next to no budget to do it. So right. we had to reuse a lot of props and a lot of materials. And also, we couldn't have a lot of people talking. So I'm like, okay, well, then what can we do for a storyline? And ultimately, it was far more interesting to do all the prop placement and then let people see the evidence of people having moved through the environment. Sure. And then following those paths and figuring out what had happened just from the visual story being told. Yeah. And that ended up being far more interesting that's than cool. I think I mean, someone have, just talking to you. Have you played Gone Home? Yes. Yeah. I and mean, that's, that's that's it. That's, that's it. just prop placement, right? Yep. Ding. Game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, you that's don't cool. need a talking head to pull off. Yeah. And the nice thing about I, what I found nice about that is I'm going through it, like I'm reading it at my own pace, whatever yep. that is that I want to do, right? Like, you know, where oftentimes, even in even in the case where the Bioshock games were like, the audio, audio logs, logs yep. comes out, which that's okay, but you're kind of like, well, I guess now I just got to sit and listen. Or because, like, I know if I go around the corner, it's going to be combat, so I'm not really but, Well, I always consider that poor design mm. because I think that when you include an audio log like that, you have to time it. Yeah. So that the player can comfortably hear, hear it, it while running while full speed something. as soon as getting it, and then they'll hear the end of it by the time something bad could happen. Yeah, and I yeah. think Saints Row did a fantastic job with this with, really? with one. So they have this one sequence, like, where you get your, where you're going on your first car mission, like, like almost right at the beginning. And you have your buddy in the car, and then like your guy's favorite song from high school comes on. Like you know, I think it's like Sublime's "What I Got" comes on, and then the both of you voice acted start singing it. Right. But they've timed the mission so you can clearly the song ends right thing. before you actually hit the you can before you can even possibly hit the destination. Yeah. And I think that kind of timing is what you want. And plus, it made for a great narrative. See, it's like one of my favorite narrative moments in any game because it just cool. felt so natural. And Gone Home had a lot of moments like that too, where I just felt it was honest. Like when you find your dad's porn mags, I'm, 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 I'm like, you know what? Yeah, I yeah. totally believe it. Like this totally makes sense, and the character's reaction to it, I totally makes sense too. Right, so right, right. Yeah. I thought that was great. Yeah, yeah. It was just, it was just wonderful being able to take a game at your own pace and your own order. Even though, like, you know, obviously you're being led along a very specific stream. Yep. Like the fact that you're doing it in, in your own way is is, is nice. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, I guess the other way to like look back, look back at your career is like, why do you think you made games? Like, why is that the thing you dedicate your, your career to? Um, I really like entertaining uh, people. I think that there's a, a huge level of satisfaction in telling a story. And I think one of the nice things about game mastering was you would often get that feedback directly from the people around your table. And that just felt uh, really good, like you were just doing a good job at something. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and and being a game master, but even a virtual game master, when you get feedback on the forums and people tell you, hey, you know what, like, I really like this part of Planescape, or like, I really like the fact that the you know, the sensory stones smell like custard. Like, for some reason, I can't, I can't forget that detail. And you're like, wow, someone noticed. You're yeah, like, yeah. oh, that's really sweet. And that just, you know, makes, makes you realize that people um, appreciated that level of entertainment, and they appreciated the love you put into it and then that makes them do more works like if whenever i hear that someone's like hey because of infinity engine game 
it made me want to go do this. I love hearing that. Because yeah. then I'm like, now I'm going to get content from this person. And now I'm going to get a positive feedback, feedback loop. And it's all because they were inspired by a creative work. And now they're going to go do something of their own, which will probably be far better than anything we ever tried to do with our original stuff. But now we can take that and go, wow, now that's inspired me to do something. Right, we right. Go off. So the cycle continues. Wow, that's cool. That's a good way of looking at it. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, thanks for taking the time to do this. Hey, Sora, thank you for inviting me. This was, this was a blast. This yeah. was a great trip down memory lane. <laughs> cool, man. Yeah, I, think, uh, I think people will love, love hearing your thoughts on this. So. <laughs>